This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. On today's show, we're going to have to defer a couple of guests, which uh, we need to do some, let's say, post-processing on. But this should mean that we're going to have an embarrassment of riches in the weeks to come. Having said that, let's immediately jump right into the way we like to start this program, which is on this date in history. Our date today is the 18th of August. On August 18th in 1590, John White, governor of the Roanoke Island Colony in present-day North Carolina, returned from a supply trip to England to find the settlement deserted. There was, in fact, no trace of the 100 or so colonists he left behind, yet no signs of violence. Among the missing was Virginia Dare, White's granddaughter and the first English child born in America. The mystery of what happened to the Roanoke Colony persists to this day. On August 18th in 1868, during a solar eclipse, French astronomer Pierre Janssen discovered helium in the sun's spectrum. This marked the first discovery of an element someplace other than here on Earth. Although it was later found on Earth, oddly enough, in deposits deep in the ground, it turns out its concentrations in the atmosphere were so small that no one had noticed it. On August 18th in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution which guaranteed women the right to vote, was ratified by Tennessee, giving it the two-thirds majority of states needed to make it the law of the land. Three months later, the vote of women contributed to the landslide election of Warren G. Harding, to which this correspondent has to say 90 years later, gals, wasn't such a great move. It was on August 18th, in the year 1227, the Genghis Khan, the Mongol leader who forged an empire stretching from the east coast of China to the Aral Sea, in fact, it was the world's largest land empire ever, died. Born as Temujin in about 1162, he grew into a feared warrior and charismatic figure. After Temujin united the Mongols by force, he was granted the title Genghis Khan, meaning universal ruler. Oh, and if you've been calling him Genghis Khan... You're mispronouncing it. And it was 20 years ago today, August 18th in 1991, that hardline elements of the Soviet government and the military attempted a coup against President Mikhail Gorbachev. The attempt signified a decline in Gorbachev's power and influence, while one of his most ardent opponents, Boris Yeltsin, who went to bat for Gorbachev, emerged with more power than ever. This correspondent had been in the USSR just two months before that, and uh, Ronald Reagan's pronouncement that it was an evil empire is one statement I would not disagree with. All right, our quote of the day comes from Benjamin Franklin, who once said, He that is good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else. Our quote of the day comes from Jimmy Kimmel, who said, Here's what I don't understand about rioting. If you're going to destroy a city for no reason, why destroy your own city? Move one city over. Our joke of the day comes from the Dave Barry calendar, and boy, we've been getting some use out of that. I want to thank uh, the listener who contributed it to this program. Said Dave Barry on August 9th, Take this scientific quiz to determine if you are a compulsive gambler. 1. Do large men sometimes break your thumb? 2. 
Have you ever lunged across a table to strangle a 73-year-old grandmother because she yelled, bingo? Three, have you ever, after gambling away all your money and pawning your possessions, said, hey, why do I need two kidneys? Four, have you ever attempted to place a bet on the chariot race in Ben-Hur? And five, if so, did you bet against Charlton Heston, your reasoning being that, hey, one of these times he's got to lose? And I got to say, amplifying Dave Barry's remarks, having visited various casinos over the years, I, I don't think that's too far off. As you mentioned in this program in the past, they make a lot more money on uh, the roulette wheel now that they show you the last winners because people look up and figure, hey, that number hasn't hit in a while. It's about due. By the way, if that logic sounds reasonable to you, Talk to someone you know who's passed a class in statistics. Either that or has some common sense. Our stat of the day, and this one, this one's kind of a shocker, but according to Reuters.com, black men in prison are half as likely to die at any given time as those on the outside. That's according to a study of 100,000 men held in North Carolina prisons over a decade. The study found that black men's death rate dropped behind bars because they were less likely to be murdered, had better health care, and had less access to drugs, alcohol, and junk food. All right, let's hit the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for going that extra mile in a service economy. With the news that a Dunkin' Donuts worker was arrested last week after she was caught selling sex along with donuts and coffee. Apparently, the Parsippany, New Jersey Police Department launched an investigation of Melissa Redmond after an anonymous tipster revealed her off-menu offerings. Said a police spokesman, she was a nighttime employee, supposedly a very good one. During the six-week operation aptly codenamed Extra Sugar, police watched as Redmond propositioned customers via the Rockway Outlet's drive through windows before joining her johns in the parking lot. Redmond was eventually nabbed after she approached an undercover police officer with a list of sexual services. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for the drug war with the news that Columbia is dismantling the agency that oversaw assets seized from drug lords after revelations that the agency lost much of the loot through corruption and mismanagement. The National Drug Office was established 20 years ago to manage the massive mansions, ranches, artwork, sports cars, private jets, and other booty impounded from arrested criminals. But the agency's new head, Juan Carlos Restrepo, found that billions of dollars worth of seized riches have gone missing. Restrepo said that as soon as he began looking through agency documents, he realized he was in charge of, quote, the mother camp, the starship of corruption, unquote. In that, we suspect that uh, Mr. Restrepo is incorrect, and in fact, the mother camp, the starship of corruption, must be found in, that, in the Pentagon's effort to ship plane loads worth of $100 bills to Iraq. 
wherein something like $6 billion worth went missing. Finally, it was an ugly week last week for winning over a fair maiden with the news that a heartbroken Milwaukee man had persuaded a friend to shoot him in the hope that his ex-girlfriend would take him back out of sympathy. Jordan Cardella, age 20, was shot once in the arm by Michael Wise, age 24, according to court documents. But uh, Cardella's ex was not moved enough by the news even to visit him in the hospital. Said prosecutor Christopher Rostorn, this has to be the most phenomenally stupid case I've ever seen. That's before Wesick was sentenced to two years probation. One imagines the court must have decided that Cardella had suffered enough. And from the Only in America file, we have the following. An online petition calling for the nuptials of Muppet flatmates Bert and Ernie has sparked comment, controversy, and lots of tweets. Evidently, Chicago resident Lair Scott, who posted the petition, is seeking matrimony for these Sesame Street chums as a way to make gay and lesbian kids who watch the show feel better about themselves and to promote tolerance for people who are different. The marriage could legitimately happen, reasons Scott, since Sesame Street is located in New York, where gay marriage became legal in June. Of course, that led to alternate petitions on the, on the website change.org, including Stop Bert and Ernie from Getting Married, Stop the Senseless False Labeling of These Two Best Friends, and Leave Bert and Ernie Alone. Note of the Sacramento Bee, one could tweet about it. Apparently, Bert and Ernie was a trending Twitter topic last week. One tweet wondered why so much attention was being showered on Bert and Ernie's domestic status when poor Oscar the Grouch remains on the curb dwelling in a garbage can. We have to echo Sacramento comedian Jack Gallagher's question at this point. Jack Gallagher said, if it's called Twitter, why aren't they called twits, not tweets? We think if you're going to Twitter about people, you should probably try to confine yourself to real people, not cartoon characters and puppets. But speaking of non-traditional marriage, how about this story? Apparently, Cody Brown, a member of a renegade Mormon sect, has filed a lawsuit challenging anti-bigamy laws in his home state of Utah. Apparently, his polygamous clan is at the center of the hit reality TV show, Sister Wives. It's noted that Cody Brown is technically married to just one woman, Marie. But the other three women he's considered married to are his so-called spiritual wives. I got a feeling this story may develop some legs. Ask Steve Chapman in the Chicago Tribune, if consenting adults create a marriage of more than two people, do we have any right to stop them? Of course, current laws say we do. Nine states specifically ban polygamy, and 49 have bigamy laws that can be used to prosecute plural families. Scott Senjo in the Salt Lake Tribune noted that Utah can't afford to leave polygamists alone because such people who reject society's norms, past experience shows, often deem laws irrelevant as well. They're prone to engage in welfare fraud and tax evasion. Steeped in a patriarchal worldview, polygamists are more likely to indulge in statutory rape, child abuse, and incest. Meanwhile, the attorney for Cody Brown, Jonathan Turley, is saying, we've heard those arguments before. My client is asking only for privacy, nothing more. In our society, it's not uncommon for men or women to have multiple sexual partners or to have children with those partners. 
Yet because Brown has stated a commitment to all his spiritual wives rather than simply running around on his first wife, it is considered a crime. Turley went on to say that civil libertarians are afraid to embrace his cause, fearing it undermines the case for same-sex unions. But consenting polygamists deserve the same right to privacy as gay people. The Browns aren't accused of hurting their kids or coercing minors. They just want the right to create a loving family according to the values of their faith. Why not live and let live? Interesting story. We'll have to continue to follow that one. All right, item from the miscellaneous file. Two of the publications we we rely upon to produce this show on a weekly basis are the Sacramento Bee, part of the McClatchy organization, one of the uh, one of the the best in the country, I dare say, and we'll have more to say about that in a minute. But we also like the Sacramento News and Review, our alternative newspaper that um, frequently digs below the surface to root out some important stories. But uh, in this case, <laughs> I was taken by their movie review, which I cannot resist quoting from. This is for the movie Another Earth. Note of the SNNR. When she gets out of prison for a vehicular manslaughter, a young woman, Britt Marling, goes to work cleaning house for, and soon becomes the lover of, the man, William Maypother, whose wife and son she killed. He was in a coma all through her trial and doesn't know who she is. Meanwhile, another planet, identical to Earth, appears overnight close enough to loom huge in the sky day and night and evidently with identical population. Director Mike Cahill isn't happy with one ridiculous premise. He has to have two. The script is credited to both Cahill and Marling, meaning perhaps that she was allowed to ad-lib her mopey, banal dialogue. A big hit at Sundance, the movie is a grungy, lugubrious, art house, Plan 9 from outer space with mumbling, tongue-tied delusions of allegorical grandeur. Gentlemen, I want to thank you for that small piece of fine writing. And doggone it, lugubrious is a word we just don't use often enough. And while I'm pretty sure they got that one right, I I just wonder about the review of Captain America, the first Avenger, wherein the little popcorn bag is delighted. Wrote the reviewers, as the U.S. enters World War II, a 90-pound wimp, unfit for military service, has recruited into a scientific program that turns him into a virtual Superman. Jack Kirby and Joe Simon's early success for Marvel Comics becomes underwriters Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, the director, the best superhero comic book movie since, well, ever. I don't know. If you agree or disagree, why don't you send us a line at info at radioparallax.com. I'm almost tempted to see that one. Also from the miscellaneous file, we have this item from a few weeks ago. Dateline Santiago, Chile. A scientific autopsy has confirmed that Chilean President Salvador Allende committed suicide during the 1973 coup that toppled his socialist government, according to court officials. Apparently, ballistics experts concluded that Allende shot himself with an assault rifle. Remind me of the Onion-esque headline in the National Lampoon back in the 1970s that announced that Salvador Allende had committed suicide by shooting himself in the back with an automatic weapon, pausing only once to reload. And speaking of deceased former heads of state, how about this commentary by Russ Baker, which appeared on his website, whowhatwhy.com, last month. Wrote Russ Baker, Nobody's perfect, but it's hard to think of anything as unworthy of a high-quality journalistic institution as the New York Times' decades-long determination to never, ever find any reason to question the original story spun by the Warren Commission on the JFK assassination. 
no matter how much new evidence has come out to the contrary. Ask any reporter privately what he or she thinks on this issue, putting aside those who will demur on the basis of not having read widely on the topic, a surprisingly large number, you'll find most believing that the lone nut or leftist loner narratives about Oswald are utter junk. This would certainly apply in the New York Times newsroom. And yet, just the other day, there was this obituary. It's about Warren Leslie, a Dallas reporter who wrote a book on right-wing animosity toward JFK in Dallas at the time of the assassination. Yet skip down to paragraph 17, and you have this contradictory little morsel. The lone suspect in the assassination, Lee Harvey Oswald, far from being a right-winger, was an ardent leftist with communist sympathies. It's neatly slipped in, just as if it's an uncontested fact, like the day's sports scores. Why take this angle? I called and emailed the obituary writer, Times staffer Dennis Hervesi, to ask him, but did not hear back by the time this was posted. In any case, it's unfair to single Hervesi out, since this has been a long-standing Times policy on the matter. Indeed, the obituary was typical of the Times' way of handling the subject. Every so often, run a kind of curiosity piece about some reporter or character, but then subtly undercut their findings. Take the paper's coverage of former Washington Post reporter and author Jefferson Morley's ongoing research on Oswald, which again points toward Oswald not being a leftist sympathizer or communist agent at all. The Times article, generally sympathetic toward Morley, actually began with the following disclaimer, which essentially contradicted the article's thrust. Is the Central Intelligence Agency covering up some dark secret about the assassination of John F. Kennedy? Probably not. Adds Russ, we have to wonder if that opening nullifier was dictated from on high. After all, though Scott Shane, who wrote that piece, called Morley's reporting meticulous, for some reason the article never provides the name of Morley's book, Our Man in Mexico, nor provides a link to it, but quotes the main no-conspiracy author and cites the name of his book instead. There are literally hundreds of interesting, often excellent books in the JFK assassination. The vast majority of these are written by serious researchers and scholars and backed by extensive documentation and footnotes and come down on the side of Oswald, having been recruited years earlier to do covert work for U.S. government entities, with the left-winger story serving as a constructed cover until his demise. Russ goes on to add, the New York Times rarely reminds readers that the House Select Committee on Assassination concluded that Kennedy's death was probably the result of an elaborate conspiracy, i.e. was not a loner operation, but with no Soviet or Cuban government involvement. So how to explain this see-no-evil act? There are many reasons that news organizations will not tell the whole story or fudge what could be revealed. Whatever's behind this shameful failure, reporters and editors know that the JFK assassination is just too hot to handle. It's a kind of electrified third rail that can destroy a journalist's career. But even a well-founded fear of being ridiculed, marginalized, demoted, or otherwise penalized is no justification for this unrelenting pattern of behavior at an institution that promotes itself as the paper of record. And in a parallel story, the Sacramento Region's paper of record, the B, noted a few weeks back, that the California State Archives is now keeper of a collection of evidence, tapes, and photographs from the investigation into Robert F. Kennedy's assassination, which took place in Los Angeles. And no, we're not sure why this was a news story. The, uh, the archives have had those records for quite a while now. Note of the article, researchers will now have easier access to the case file that L.A. County Sheriff's Department investigators built in 1968 and 69. 
Sirhan Sirhan was originally sentenced to death, but his sentence was commuted to life imprisonment. He has since then been denied parole 14 times, most recently last March. In April, his lawyers filed new legal papers claiming a mind control plot in which a mysterious girl in a polka dot dress induced Sirhan to fire at Kennedy. And yes, we know how that sounds. Like a fictional scenario out of The Manchurian Candidate. But uh, we spoke on this program some years back with uh, Sirhan's then-attorney, the late Lawrence Teeter, about some of this stuff. And um, without (laughs) rehashing all of it, we'll simply note this is not a preposterous suggestion. And we refer you back to our archives, where you still should be able to locate and listen to our interview with Lawrence Teeter on this very topic. Mr. McMillan and I are interested enough in the case of Bobby Kennedy to... In 2003, the 35th anniversary of his assassination, go down to the Ambassador Hotel for a conference on the subject. That also is available on our archives in our talk with Lisa Pease. We're up against it on time for this segment, but I think I'll end with a cartoon I'm looking at from the current issue of The New Yorker. It shows a blogger in front of his uh, desktop, working away hard and telling his wife, I'm too busy recommending things to experience them myself. Well, we do recommend a lot of things in this program, but thankfully we don't have them take so much of our time up that we don't have a chance to experience some of them ourselves. Having said that, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got plenty more. Stick around. Oh, my- 